Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books in Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. This is the third episode of season five, the season is focused on the culture of medicine and how it both supports doctors and nurses in providing superb medical care in the most difficult of circumstances, such as during the current coronavirus pandemic, but also how it leads them to inflict harm on themselves and their patients. In this episode, we explore the topic of technology in American healthcare. If you want more information on the culture of healthcare, you can find links to articles and other podcasts on my website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Topol. He's a cardiologist, the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, a professor of molecular medicine at the Scripps Research Institute, and editor-in-chief at Medscape. He has published three best-selling books on the future of medicine, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, The Patient Will See You Now, and most recently, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. This season of Fixing Healthcare is about the culture of medicine and how it leads to some of the most remarkable outcomes. And yet at the same time, the same culture can harm doctors and patients. You're one of the world's leading experts in technology, And we thought that in this episode, we'd explore this dichotomy with you, particularly when it comes to information technology, virtual medical care, and artificial intelligence, all areas that you have expertise about. And by culture, I mean the values, beliefs, and norms that doctors learn, usually in their training, and apply throughout their practice. As an example, if an intervention will save 10 lives, and prevention will save 15, doctors still prefer interventional solutions. Angioplasty versus lipid blood pressure and exercise is a good example. Doctors believe that their judgment and intuition are better than checklists and machine-driven algorithms, despite a huge amount of data that says they're wrong. And they bring patients back to their office when a virtual approach would be better. So let me begin, Eric, by asking you, how do you explain such a culture in the 21st century that seems to not fully recognize the power of technology? And what would you recommend we do about it, if anything? Well, it's a really important question you're asking, Robert. And I think the issue here is not like a simple answer, Uh, you know, just to get into some examples. So technology would be the reflex that if you see a narrowing in an artery, uh, you should go fix it. The, uh, what I called many years ago, the oculostenotic reflex. And in fact, that still is the case that even though, as you've cited, a lot of data would suggest that it's perfectly fine to use medical therapy, there's this fix it mentality to use the technology. Um, so that's part of it. it it's not necessarily evidence-based, but it's this bias that we, you know, if you can fix it, you should. Um, there's another uh, side of this, of course, uh, in the whole world of uh, IT and artificial intelligence, and that is to be able to use technology in a very favorable way to improve the situation we're at right now. But uh, it, it, it also, as we'll discuss, has a chance to backfire. Why don't you say a little bit more about it then? Well. In the near future, and it's already starting now, we'll be able to process data as physicians uh, far faster and more accurately with the help of machines. So whether that's uh, scans or slides or um, anything that has uh, data, uh, including voice, all these things that can be put through deep neural networks. So one potential if we just proceed as we are now, is that 
since we have overlords, administrators, they will say, oh, that's great. We, we purchased these algorithms, these, these software packages. So now we want you, instead of reading uh, 50 scans a day, we want you to read uh, uh, 200 a day or slides or see more patients. So you see, this is where technology can really backfire because what it should be doing is actually enhancing the patient-doctor relationship, which desperately needs help. So, you know, it can go both ways. Uh, the example, you know, you started with, with uh, using a procedure, uh, which is not necessarily backed by all the evidence, but also can be used against the uh, practice of medicine because it's become so business-centric. So let's go one level deeper, Eric, if we could. When it comes to certain tests like mammograms, the data that I've been shown says that AI is at least equivalent to radiologists. Now, I don't know if you agree with that data, but if so, why don't we just shift from people to machines now if the two are exactly equivalent in accuracy? Yeah, well, we got a few problems with that. Firstly, uh, the studies which you're citing correctly, uh, there's notably NYU study and a big Google study and several others. Machines through deep networks um, can be trained to be more accurate than uh, radiologists in interpreting mammograms for false positive or false negative. That's true. The problem is those data sets are all retrospective. They're not real world data sets. There's been no prospective studies, nor has there been randomized studies, not meaning you have to do randomized studies, but that would make it even more firm evidence. So what we have is these uh, in silico, beautiful, pristine data sets that make that conclusion. The all, also noteworthy is the conclusion's wrong because we don't want to entrust a algorithm to interpret a mammogram and put a, a woman's life at potential risk or having unnecessary procedures. What we want is the combination. So the problem we have in AI medical research, it's always man versus machine. And with few exceptions, what it should be is man plus machine versus either component. That is the sum of the parts is greater than either of the components. And there's just not enough of that type of work. So, you know, I think always there will be oversight. And so eventually there will be prospective studies uh, to your point. Uh, they will likely validate that the accuracy is improved, but it's going to be even better when you have the clinical context that a radiologist would have in that example. And that goes across all disciplines of medicine. The challenge with a prospective one in this area is you have to wait a certain number of years to find out whether the patient really had a negative mammogram or actually developed breast cancer that was missed on the mammogram. So I think that's why most of the studies have been done the way they, they are, although you can easily look back, take studies from five years ago that were not included in the AI database and apply them. Yeah, you're bringing up a point which um, is a good one, that the so-called ground truths that you want for a deep neural network. But there's another way to look at it uh, that you get the answer, you know, in, in very fast in a matter of weeks, which is just do uh, a paired assessment and see how concordant they are. And then just zoom in on the ones where there's discrepancy to see which one is the right assessment. So we're not talking about here the prognosis, which is what you're getting at, of what the, the neural network interprets versus the radiologist. We're just talking about the accuracy of the interpretation, you know, is there really uh, a, a nodule or not? Is something missed or, or was it falsely picked up? So that part, we could get the answer really quickly and that would provide lots of reassurance. Well, we certainly have lots of listeners who are in the academic world. Hopefully one of them will take the challenge and do exactly what you're suggesting. And uh, by next year, maybe have an answer to this question. But let's move on, let's move on to uh, something that I think is very vital, the electronic health record, another piece of technology. It's hard to imagine providing excellent medical treatment, high quality, coordinated, and efficient without comprehensive information. 
and yet as a nation we remain very distant from that goal. Why are we not there? And equally importantly, why do doctors seem to demand surgical robots that have yet to be proven that they can save a life and not scream for 21st IT systems that have been proven many times over to accomplish that goal? Yeah, well, that's a good one there. Um, first of all, our electronic health records, here it is, you know, almost 2021, and they're truly pathetic. They were set up, as you well know, to be uh, promoting business and billing, never for the patient or the physician. And they're, they're so inadequate that what's important here as we go more and more into the era of AI, it's all about the inputs. And when the inputs are shaky, um, then you get compromised outputs. The other thing about these uh, electronic health records um, is that they not only are making physicians and nurses and all clinicians into data clerks, but they're largely uh, a big part of you know, the burnout phenomena that is detracting from ability to provide care. So they have been an abject failure, as you're well aware. And the problem is that the companies involved, you know, not just Epic and Cerner, but the other ones, there's never been uh, the teeth it requires in the government to require these software programs to have uniformity, to have complete interoperability, uh, and also to be um, favoring patients. That is, that a patient should have a copy of all of their records. So it's partly the fact that at, at a level of the country, we've never had the teeth and the regulation that a lot of, a lot of lip service, a lot of fancy documents, but never really executed as it should be. So that's the EHR part of it. Now, you also brought up about technology that gets embraced with little or no data. And so, you know, a fine example of that would be, you know, the, the surgical robots, as you've mentioned, that are now uh, largely used. Uh, they're in many uh, instances just a marketing uh, type of uh, promotional for the health system or for the doctors that, you know, we use the robots, but the, the data are scant for providing benefit. And so, you know, that's just like, you know, the proton centers for cancer. The, these very costly technologies that don't have proven value. And, and this is a recurrent problem in medicine and it just makes healthcare all the more expensive and all, all the more off the track. When COVID-19 ends and travel resumes, people will once again be able to book a flight, reserve a hotel, make dinner plans, and schedule a car relatively quickly online. And yet if they want to schedule a doctor's visit or find out their laboratory results, they need to call the doctor's office between 9 and 5 Monday to Friday. Why do doctors seem, and this is a cultural issue, not to value patient convenience? Well, what you're saying is really true. Um, and this is a holdover from um, over two millennia. That is the idea that the doctor knows best, the doctor's in control of everything. And uh, it's not set up to be promoting the, you know, this term patient-centered. It's so important, but it's, the way it's used or established today is, is bogus. If we're patient-centered, then everything that we do, should, the, the patient should be getting a copy of. Uh, they have a right to that, just like they have a right to healthcare. They have a right to their data that they paid for, and it's their body, and they're the primary focus of whatever test or whatever visit that they've had. And when that's been explored, uh, it's been shown that both patients and uh, clinicians favor that. But the problem is, as you've uh, touched on, uh, is the culture issue. Still today, physicians, more than uh, 60%, are unwilling to give patients their notes. Uh, the idea of making appointments, which should be the norm uh, electronically, is still a rarity. So we have to fix this. And it really is something that other countries around the world that are not so hung up on the cultural uh, issues have been able to override. So I'm confident in the future we will get there. There has been a lot of talk about potentially mandatory contact tracing. Americans value freedom and privacy. That being said, I don't think a lot of Americans realize just 
you know, how much data Facebook and Google collect on them and that they don't really have as much privacy as they think they do. That being said, aren't you at least a little bit worried that contact tracing apps for COVID-19 would, you know, potentially open up a dangerous door or precedent of tracking American citizens against their will that could potentially later be used for ill or, you know, more nefarious means? Right. Well, the smartphone contact tracing apps, um, they're clever, but they only work if you have the vast majority of people on them. And there's very few examples around the world where it's actually made a substantive contribution. So because there's just so many people still today that think that this is all a hoax and it's, you know, a flu or whatever, we're not going to get to the point where it's, it's worthwhile, maybe in, you know, a very small pocket of the country, but in the U S it's a lost cause. Um, you know, I think the hope is that, uh, in the months ahead, because this pandemic will be with us for a good part of 2021, um, we're going to have uh, better ways to trace and certainly digital tracing would facilitate. We can't ever have enough, uh, people contact tracers. Uh, also, you can't do any tracing when you have overwhelming number of cases a day like we have right now. So as we start to get control, as vaccination uh, starts to take hold, uh, then will give us an opportunity to use both uh, the people uh, as well as hopefully getting the digital apps. But the privacy will be, remain a concern. Again, it's all about the modeling. You know, if if you have leadership that are showing how helpful this can be in suppressing, containing the virus, there's much more likely that there'll be adoption. In general, Eric, as doctors, we're trained to follow branching algorithms as we pursue a diagnosis or provide treatment for chronic diseases. I mean, that's how our professors taught you and me and how I continue and you continue to teach medical students and residents. Combining AI and algorithms provides more consistent and better outcomes than humans based on a variety of studies, not only in medicine, but in other disciplines as well. Embracing these technological solutions would make the steps coming from information technology superior, I believe at least, to physician judgment, at least for the 80% or more of patients whose problems are not overly complex. The data demonstrates that strict adherence would save more lives than relying on intuition and the experience of the physician. And yet I think most doctors would reject that concept. They'd call it cookbook medicine. Why is this? Why do you believe that people seem unwilling to accept the power now available in AI, in algorithms, in technology? And what do you believe should and can be done about it? Well, that's a kind of multi-pronged uh, strategy going forward. Firstly, um, as you're well aware, there's more than 12 million serious diagnostic errors a year in the U.S. So it's a big issue. And a lot of that is because of insufficient time with patients, because if the diagnosis isn't conceived in the first five minutes in the differential, the accuracy drops down from 95% to in the 20%. So um, we can do better by having uh, a boost uh, support through uh, AI and helping to get a diagnosis. Uh, also, of course, if there was more time, the gift of time afforded by AI, that would help as well. The other thing that you uh, got to, Robert, was about giving patients more charge. They want more charge. They're generating a lot of data now, whether it's through sensors, or whether it's those who've had their, some of their genomic data, those who have the portal uh, to their electronic health records, or even more than the portal provides. And you know, over time, there's gonna be even more data. So the, the patients who wanted to get charge, take charge, are gonna have more and more capability. Today, the first FDA deep learning algorithm was you know, a smartwatch diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, but we're already seeing inroads in skin lesions and skin cancer, self-diagnosis, uh, urinary tract infections, ear infections in children, and a long list of things that give uh, patients far more capability to get a doctor-less initial diagnosis. Now, if they need treatment, 
or, you know, whether it's an antibiotic for urinary tract infection or a biopsy for a skin lesion or whatever, that's, of course, where they can connect. But we're going to see more of a level playing field, if you will, where over time, patients through AI support will be able to do more and get the answer quickly and not have to go through all the rigmarole as they do today. So that's good because that further decompresses the work of physicians, and that's a good thing. Yeah, let me dive a little bit deeper into this area because it's a, a realm that I'm very interested in. As you've pointed out, we now have monitors can monitor blood pressure, glucose, cardiac arrhythmias, oxygen, a whole dozen or more parameters at a time. Uh, moreover, AI could identify changes. And here's the key question I have. AI could tell the patient, you're okay, based upon either stability in the clinical parameters or the fact that something bad didn't happen uh, in someone who already has the problem. And yet, so far, there are no manufacturers that have been willing to create such a device that would say to you in the morning, Eric, your three diseases are under control. There's no need to see the physician, as opposed to another morning when the AI would tell you it's time to see the physician. Instead, what we either have is a broad search for a rare diagnosis, as in the AI ex example in younger people, or we have this notion that we're going to send information to your doctor who doesn't have the interest or time in seeing 100 rhythm strips or glucose measurements. How can we get these companies to create the products that are patient-driven, that's exactly what's needed for patient care, rather than the things that are easy for them to make or ones that are safe for them to sell? Right. Well, you're kind of... Uh just had a glimpse of the future here. Uh, that is where we're headed, but we're not there yet. And that's partly because the models of deep learning are not uh, matched up with the challenge. So what you're really getting at is a virtual medical coach or assistant that takes all of one's data, not just one piece of it, but all of the data and processes it to either, as you've mentioned, provide better management of a chronic illness, you know, whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever, but also uh, to prevent those illnesses in people with high risk, whether it's genomics or family history or biomarkers or whatever. So we are gonna get there eventually, but deep learning by itself isn't gonna get us there. We need hybrid models. No company yet has been able to come up with the answer, although many are working on that. Um, we're starting to see it, you know, initially in high blood pressure and diabetes because they're so common, but they're isolated. They're not, as you asked, Robert, about multiple conditions, the holistic person that we're far away from that. And we haven't even gotten the, the, the isolated conditions nailed. So we're getting there slowly. It's not uh, moving as quickly as I'd like, but I think eventually we will, we will have that. Well, I actually have more confidence in the AI than the physician culture shifting. A good example to me is some, a device you're very well familiar with, the implantable defibrillator, which as you know by law, whenever it fires, has to go to a large data set so that everyone can be notified about it. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we shifted our practice. So rather than seeing the patient every three months to check on how their device was doing, we saw them at the start of the year. We made sure they had all the information and understood how it worked. And then we said, we're going to see you whenever it fires. It could be tomorrow, not three months from now, or it could be nine months from now, because the thing that we're going to treat is going to be the fact that the machine detected an arrhythmia that required it to fire and um, defibrillate the heart or at least address the, the cardiac arrhythmia that existed. That's the notion that I have of where medicine could go. I'll see you for your chronic disease whenever there's a need to see you. I might see you three times this month, or I might not see you for nine months, and the AI can tell you whether you have that critical condition. But will physicians change their practice, or will they continue to say, let me see you in three months, and three months, and three months? So far, the doctor culture has prevented its change in practice 
when we've had data that's allowed a more variable schedule and doctors have not really been willing to do it, particularly as an example in the area of cancer. What do you think? Yeah, well, I do think uh, you're bringing up an important topic. And I, I think that the guidance, uh, the individualized assessment and need for um, direct interactions uh, will, will get rebooted. But, you know, you're well aware, uh, if anyone, of uh, that we, we work in a ritualistic, you know, sclerotic, uh, ossified culture as physicians. So we stick to our habits. And in order to break those, they have to be really uh, strong evidence and, uh, you know, peer pressure. And, you know, you have to break through the issues of reimbursement and the norms and standard of care because people don't want to worry about legal matters if they're not seeing someone with the right periodicity because of some breach of what would be norms. So we've got a lot of things to kind of, you know, reset here and it'll happen. But as we both know, it takes much longer than it should. Yeah, that's the real question. And, you know, the focus of the podcast is why should patients have to wait? Why should we have to wait for this cultural change. Yes, there are systemic issues. AI's got to get better. The EHR's got to improve. But we seem to just tolerate it in a way that doesn't make sense because we are talking about, obviously, uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions of lives every year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot like this country's response to COVID-19, which has been largely passive instead of taking an active role, whereas many other countries around the world had took a very aggressive role and completely contained the, the uh, outbreaks. And, uh, you know, instead of learning from those countries about uh, and, and acting like them to manage COVID, the, you know, the same story is with the, with the things we've been discussing. I mean, if you take a model country like Estonia, they've nailed down everything we've discussed uh, today. <laughs> They're a model system. And there are many other countries like that. But we don't learn from these because this U.S. Uh, arrogance of, oh, we, we have the best healthcare system, which couldn't be further from the truth. Since you've raised COVID, uh, let me go there for a little while. We've seen a leap in the use of telemedicine during COVID-19 from low single digits to 70% or so, and then a decline when social distancing restrictions were lifted. Where do you believe we should be? And how do you explain the gap between that number and today's usage? Well, I think it was a good thing. I mean, there's not many silver linings of this pandemic, but one thing that was important was to show that you could provide care at scale without having to be physically together. Uh, it isn't ideal. Uh, it's not the same because of the issues of what you can pick up when you're in the same room together, but it sure is a lot more convenient and it's safe when you have an infectious disease that could be lethal or certainly, you know, create very severe illness. And what we have today is uh, telemedicine 1.0. It's basically a video chat, unless you happen to have a, a skin rash or something you could show a picture. Uh, there's not a lot of data transfer, but I think what's going to happen, uh, Robert, is that we're going to see telemedicine 2.0 uh, emerge where there is data transfer, not just sensor data, the ability to image uh, through a smartphone, uh, the ability to get a lot of data uh, and scans and whatnot. So I think it'll be still uh, not the same as when you get together. But on the other hand, you're also getting a window into the person's home and you're also having constant uh, eye contact. Whereas if you're in the office, you might be looking at a keyboard and your back turned to a patient. So I think overall, what the pandemic did was force telemedicine to be operational in many places that it wasn't, to get both doctors, patients, um, you know, nurse clinicians to be uh, realize how helpful it can be. And I do think over time, it's going to be uh, broadly accepted for a lot of reasons, that is, it decompresses the important visits that need to be done in person for a serious diagnosis, a, a new patient, uh, an important treatment decision, that sort of stuff. So we can 
get a lot of things um, done uh, through quick teleconsults that are inexpensive and convenient and save the real deal for when you need to come together. And that's when you need, you know, all the concerns addressed and the, the communication that's exquisite and the empathy and all that stuff. We want to try to segment that into visits that are the conventional ones. Five years from now, if we have a COVID equivalency, what technology would you like to see doctors have that today they don't have? And will the culture of medicine drive the change or block it? Well, if we really want to do this right, we'd have multi-layered uh, real-time uh, monitoring of patients uh, as a prevention and, and, and as you cite as an example, if there was another pandemic, you know, today it's, it's just an incredible absence of what ca our capabilities are. I mean, we could know everything about an individual and their uh, venue or where they live by all these layers of data, not just their uh, smartphone mobility, their searches uh, for things like the current pandemic of loss of smell, but also, you know, their heart rate at rest and uh, other markers that we know now are helpful, as particularly in a cluster, to diagnose COVID at the earliest possible time. We'd also have wastewater surveillance and all these different layers of data so that we would have, be able to pick up an outbreak before it happens and also to be able to monitor patients without being in the hospital. So for example, there are now these chest patches, or arm wearable sensors that get continuous vital signs, uh, you know, except blood pressure, but all the vital signs you need to be able to keep a person who potentially could decompensate, but if they're healthy enough with COVID or the next pandemic as you're uh, framing, they, they wouldn't be in a hospital setting but we're just not using these the way we should. And, and right now we have the analytics, all these capabilities uh, exist today. It's just the lack of support overall why they're not being implemented. But again, I will go back to this physician culture. The physician who today is hospitalizing people in the community hospital and tomorrow is gonna to have to try to manage them while they're at home with a variety of sensors and data coming through their office and uh, 24 by seven, are they going to be able to embrace this? And I don't mean themselves, I mean forming groups and moving out of the culture of the past into the culture of the future, because I don't see the technology of the future and the culture of the past being able to coexist. Is it gonna happen, and if so, how? Yes, I agree with you fully. I, I think, firstly, you know, today doctors don't like to get sensor data from patients because it's just a lot of data to look at and. You know, it's, it's just who, who has time to do that kind of thing. That's why we need advanced analytics to do that. And also, you know, we have to have the triggers, the alerts uh, for the patient and for whoever's monitoring the patient um, to be not like the alarms that work in a hospital today, which are, you know, uh, going off, uh, you know, 80 to 100 times a day. Uh, with false alarms. They need to be the real deal alarms that the person has uh, issues. So, you know, we have to be able to prove that that is uh, working, working well, and then hopefully we'll get the buy-in. But, it, uh, you know, the thing that you've emphasized in our conversation is the cultural uh, blocks. And that is going to, you know, we'll see it more likely to occur in younger physicians and those that I, I think are eager to see changes. But, you know, it is going to take perhaps, uh, you know, many years before we fully can get this turned around for the better. To that end, Eric, you work in an academic world. How do you see the culture of medicine being different as it relates to technology between what's often called town and gown? Yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, a gap which is probably in many ways not uh, necessary or not real uh, because there's practice of medicine can be exemplary in either setting. It also can be faulty uh, and subpar in either setting. Uh, and of course there is a, a overall 
you know, sense of arrogance that occurs in the academic setting that, you know, the, the, the patients that are not in those places are coming from St. Elsewhere or whatever. So there really isn't the unity uh, that we'd like to see. Uh, and there's not enough respect across the board um, for uh, how patients are, uh, are looked after, irrespective of where they're being cared for. So, you know, I think this has been a long-term issue. Uh, that too is going to take some time to get um, a better sense of solidarity. But I do think, as we've been talking about, that AI will give support across the board to all clinicians. And, you know, that ranges from, you know, uh, paramedics to pharmacists to, uh, you know, geriatricians to family uh, medical um, specialists, everyone. No one will be spared of getting help. That is, they all will get support of their daily work. And so that's going to make uh, the needs, like for example, you can get a diabetic retinopathy screen today in a grocery store in many places uh, by an untrained person. Uh, and th that's great because people with diabetes, half of them don't even have any screening throughout their lifetime for preventable blindness. So you're going to see a lot of this gap uh, reduced over time because of technology. Two last more general questions. I can't resist having Eric Topol on the show, just the world's leader in a lot of different areas. But Eric, you've spoken about the potential for doctors to unionize. If so, uh, to what end and how will culture either promote or inhibit the process? Well, the term wouldn't be unionized necessarily. That, something, that has a bad connotation. But uh, we did form um, the Ulcers Alliance and uh, the, the aspiration is to get all physicians to work together to stand up for patients. Uh, that is to uh, reclaim the soul of medicine, which is that precious relationship that can be restored, needs to be restored. You know, we've talked about one reason, uh, AI, but obviously uh, that, that's in the works, which could make it better by decompressing the work of clinicians and giving uh, patients more charge. But there are many other parts of this story that are unattended because the current professional organizations, not just the AMA, but across the board, they just don't attend to this matter. So, you know, we have formed this, actually, we just recently launched the Oslo's Alliance, and I hope that over time we'll get the vast majority of physicians to be part of it, because the singular goal of this organization or alliance is to stand up for patients so that the things that could detract from what they want and need and what we believe they deserve is no longer the case that that in fact um, the outgrowth of this will be uh, a restoration of the critical relationship that is necessary to avoid burnout to avoid depression and all the the bad parts of uh, healthcare today where it just can't go on. It, it, it has to have a remedy. And the, the real remedy, we think, is, is this one. If you could wave a wand and alter the culture of medicine, what would you do? Uh, well, that's quite a hypothetical because it'll never happen. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the wand for me would be the, the, the human connection to bring it back, whatever it takes. You know, uh, I finished med school in the late 70s, and I'm very familiar with how different it was then, how much time we had with patients, how that the human touch, um, whether that's just the time together to listen, not interrupt, to do a really more thorough, proper physical exam, to be available, you know, to really go through important matters and concerns of patients. Well, that time has basically uh, been vanquished and the relationships have eroded. So the magic one I would ha uh, put towards would be to get that back and even get it better than ever before. And that overrides technology 
um, it, it leans on technology to get there. But I, I, I will never give up. Uh, I, hope we, I hope we eventually will, will have this back to the future uh, capability. Let me push one last, one last time on this. Those are the things that I'll say are being done to the doctor and the patient. But what about the things in the physician culture, if you think they exist, that actually harm the patient, that need to change in order to maximize that patient care? Well, the, the, the number one thing would be liberation from keyboards. There would be no ever working on a keyboard uh, or the need really to be connected with uh, computers and screens because that all could be done through voice. Uh, that is, the, the notes could be synthetic as well of, or any tests that need to be ordered and all the things that are being done today that require data clerk function. That should not be any part of a clinician's time. And we have the ability to eliminate all that, but we're not uh, giving it the priority. I mean, I've seen incredible synthetic notes from the conversation that occurs between patients and clinicians, and they're rapidly with um, machine learning uh, so that the, the doctor doesn't even have to put any time into reviewing them, uh, you know, maybe a few seconds to check something. But the fact that we could have that and the fact that we get patients involved in their own, look, reviewing their own notes and editing it, that's what we should be doing because it's the electronic health record and the data clerk function that so much of that accounts for the demise. Again, let me push a little bit harder uh, in terms of the physician culture. So as an example, the fact that we value intervention more than prevention or a hierarchy that puts an interventionalist like you or myself often above primary care or the culture that says we don't really pay much attention to cost because that's the insurance company's problem and it's actually our responsibility, particularly in those situations where we do things that don't add much value. Are any of these areas that you think need to happen simultaneously to these more systemic changes you're describing? Well, I mean, I, I, your point about prevention can't be emphasized enough because we're not using the tools we have today. I mean, we, we have polygenic risk scores that would give uh, the, a sign a risk that's quite accurate uh, for um, conditions that range from coronary disease to type 2 diabetes to uh, different cancers like prostate and breast and atrial fibrillation and a long list. And we're not using it. And you could get that kind of data for, you know, very minimal costs. Uh, so if we start to come up with a, uh, a plan where we gauge the risk of people and we go into full prevention mode, rather than secondary prevention, which is largely what it is today after they've already had a stent uh, or a heart attack. Um, so we can do so much better and the knowledge base is there. It just hasn't been implemented. Uh, the same would be for pharmacogenomics. There's almost 200 drugs that have a genomic label. How many of them are used in clinical practice to prevent side effects or to get maximal efficacy? Almost zero. So. Uh, we have this separation of, of knowledge and practice, which has to stop and be in a different orbits. Um, but, you know, the intervention pr uh, priority is, unfortunately, you know, that's somewhat tied to reimbursement, somewhat tied to cultural, as we discussed at the beginning. And we have to, you know, get a better, what's the best for the patient, you know, and that, again, here's where AI can click in for patients as to, you know, they get an assessment and they get that a second and uh, fifth opinion through AI tools. And that eventually will be the case too. They might not have to actually see another doctor. They may have multiple uh, AI checks uh, and simulations to see was that procedure or is that test really necessary with the evidence that's all processed. When I look at the one thing from the pandemic that I think has, you know, really changed how I go about my life for the better significantly is like you touched on it earlier, but telehealth visits, you know, just being able to, you know, just to have a 10 minute 
telehealth visit with my doctor versus going in and spending an hour, hour and a half or whatever it is in the waiting room and filling out forms there in person. I can just do it at home while I'm working. And then as soon as my telehealth's ready, pause from work, do it 10 minutes and I'm back to it. Um, the convenience of that and how much I actually liked it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I don't think people realize just how much more convenient it is until they actually do it. And that being said, are there things like that that have come either from the pandemic or do you think that, that we've learned from the pandemic and will be implementing in the future that have just really changed things for the better and kind of set a new precedent for how things will be handled going forward? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Jeremy. I, I actually think it goes both ways, not just for patients, the whole ordeal of having to go to uh, an office and uh, you know drive there and the parking and the waiting and the waiting room and on and on. It's also on the physician side, the convenience, not all these middle people that you're waiting to get the medications or the vital signs or whatever they're doing. You basically are just have a direct connect. It's fast, it's convenient. And for a lot of matters, it's all you really need. And so we have to partition that, that when, and by the way, you know, you might pick up during a televisit, as you well know, that there's something that's deeper of concern and you've, you've got to have a, a real visit uh, in, in person. So I think we're the, this is perhaps uh, the biggest lesson. We had projected telemedicine was going to take off much faster because that people would realize mutually, both on the patient and clinician side, of the value of the decompression potential uh, to make any real visit I mean, in-person visit, that much more effective and helpful. So I, I think that, you know, even though it's somewhat on the wane right now, because it was the only choice for some time during 2020, it's going to be a very big part of the future. And we're going to see partitioning. Uh, and I enjoy doing teleconsults. I think they're great. I, I know the patients do. And you, we, we can do a lot of things that way. And as I mentioned earlier uh, with Robert, we're going to be able to do even more. So they're not, they're not going to go away. Um, they're going to be a, a, a very important part of the practice of medicine going forward. You know, I, I think of the, my first couple times doing telehealth, it reminds me of the first couple times I sent a text message and was like, oh, hey, pick up some milk on the way home or something like that. And it's like, holy cow, that was easy. I didn't need to make a whole phone call. And my question for you is, what do you think is coming next that is going to have that same kind of mind-blowing, either time-saving or revolutionary impact on the way people perceive their relationships with their doctors or the way they perceive medicine? Well, I think the big thing is just uh, the self-diagnosis of many conditions, whereby it, it completely bypasses the need for the visit or when there's a treatment, as mentioned, you know, that connection is important. So we'll, you know, if you're in the UK now, you get your urinary tract infection diagnosed with an AI kit. And increasingly, a lot of skin problems are going to be done through AI. So that, I think, is going to be the big change um, imminently, that is, in the next few years. More of those things on the list of common reasons why people see doctors go to, for visits, and they're not life-threatening or serious matters, largely, but they're things that can be automated to a large extent. And that's going to be a big help for patients. That's going to be like what you just asked about, that simple text that's transformative, um, which basically doesn't add to the burden of clinicians who are already overwhelmed. And it gives for those patients, and not all, I mean, there are many people who still want traditional uh, uh, connections, but for many to be able to get the answer they need and want quickly at, at zero cost or low cost, that is very attractive. Do you have an optimistic view of how the American healthcare system will come out of the pandemic? Are you more pessimistic? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm kind of halfway there. I'm on, on the one hand, I know it, it could be fantastic. And all the lessons we've learned about the inequities laid bare and the need to have universal health care, that it's a right of every human being, we've got, to, we've got to get that because technology could make those things worse. So I know there's a path that 
you know, here we, we spend trillions of dollars. I don't even know where they went over the course of the pandemic in this country. If we put a fraction of that towards um, the fixing of healthcare that, that's desperately needed, we could come up with a far better system that all of us would be proud of that for the amount that we spend would be commensurate rather than disproportionate. So I'm optimistic it can get there. The question is, will it get there? And what is in store? And, you know, we have a, a, a huge bureaucratic, monolithic country to try to change the system, which is uh, absent, really, dysfunctional, afunctional. Hopefully, we'll, we'll take the, the necessary steps to get there. Thanks, Eric, for being on the show today and for providing your exceptional expertise on the topic of technology and the culture of medicine. Robbie, what are your thoughts on what Dr. Topol said? Jeremy, I was impressed by his fact-based assessment of the impact technology can have and the areas where the hype exceeds the reality. I would, however, expand on his assessment in a couple of ways. The first is how technology can help doctors overcome some of their biases. The data on culture identify the many ways all of us are more empathetic and compassionate to people like ourselves than we are to individuals of a different race or ethnicity. We saw that bias when researchers looked at how often doctors ordered COVID tests on patients of different races with identical symptoms. Black patients tended to be tested less often than white patients. Similarly, we know that there's a three to four times higher mortality for black women during childbirth. And some of that can be explained by white doctors not paying adequate attention to their complaints. When black doctors provide the care, the mortality rates among black and white patients were identical. Technology can factor race into the decision-making process in positive ways. And it can remind doctors to be aware of their biases when caring for individuals of a different race or background. The second way technology, particularly artificial intelligence, can save lives is by monitoring patients on a more frequent basis than doctors alone can do. As an example, if a patient has a blood pressure cuff, it directly transmits the readings or simply allows the patient to enter the results into an algorithm, a computer can assess whether the patient is moving towards control in a rapid fashion or not. And in response, more frequent medication adjustments can be made for those individuals whose clinical results are lagging whether the adjustments are made by doctors or pharmacists. Similarly, the technology can assess blood glucose measurements each time they are taken and identify the need for medication and insulin adjustments far sooner than is done today. Technology can be the partner to the doctor, but only if the culture of medicine changes to welcome that relationship. Please subscribe to the Fixing Healthcare podcast on Apple Podcasts or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics, you can visit my website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.